1: LinkedIn, the place to be, to be.
2: Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iheartradio.com/rtp for a chance to receive a one thousand dollar gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iheartradio.com/rtp. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had on There Are No Girls on the Internet is with a writer who was targeted and harassed online about how she continues to stay safe while doing visible work on the internet. Without missing a beat, she said, "Anybody worried about online harassment should sign up for Delete Me."
3: And enter code no girls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com/slash no girls, code no girls. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control. Enter Conair GirlBomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate girl bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. Y'all already know that navigating the online world can be tricky and complicated. That's why
2: here at There Are No Girls on the Internet, we just launched a brand new newsletter where I'll be taking your internet questions and conundrums. To subscribe and submit a question, just go to tangody.com slash newsletter. And I can't wait to connect with you there.
4: You can't pinpoint any violent act to anything said online, but the overall raising of the temperature is what allowed it to happen in the first place.
2: There Are No Girls on the Internet is a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. We are in the middle of a full-blown moral panic around LGBTQ identity in schools. LGBTQ folks are being smeared as pedophiles or being accused of grooming kids for sexual abuse. And this comes as trans and queer people are already under attack. According to NBC, state lawmakers have already proposed a record 238 bills that would limit the rights of LGBTQ folks this year alone. That's more than three per day, with about half of those bills specifically targeting trans folks. So what's empowering these bills? Well, in part, it's hateful online rhetoric, fear-mongering, and baseless conspiracy theories about trans and queer folks. And Alejandra Caraballo says we all need to be paying attention.
4: My name is Alejandra Caraballo. I am a civil rights attorney Um, and currently teaching at Harvard Law School's Cyber Law Clinic as a clinical instructor.
2: Alejandra has spent her entire life building power for and with marginalized communities online and off. As we talked, she sat in her office at Harvard, flanked by posters of historic power builders like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. So you are one of the first trans women of color to ever teach at Harvard. I guess my first question is, what has that been like for you? And how did you get here? How did you get to be doing what you're doing?
4: Yeah. I mean, it's been surreal. I I mean, I've been very fortunate. I I know you said one of, like, I was very fortunate to start at the same time as my, my dear friend, Anya Marino, um, who's working at the LGBTQ advocacy clinic. Uh, We started within like a day of each other um, at, you know, at the clinic. So we kind of both started at the same time. So we are both the first trans women of color to teach at the clinic or at Harvard Law. I mean, it's been a quite an interesting experience like I've never been so close to like these kind of centers of power in this way like I grew up in a very middle class like Florida suburb like you know like Harvard just seemed like this like pipe dream out there and and even then you know I went to Brooklyn Law School and I did three years of direct legal work doing immigration family law with trans Latinx immigrants uh, and then two years of movement impact litigation at the Transgender Legal Defense Education Fund. And then um, I've always been a bit of a tech nerd. So, you know, this kind of was a nice way to kind of give myself a break. I had kind of really burned myself out on movement work after five years. And especially during the Trump administration, it was just, it was a lot. So it's it's been great. My students are my favorite thing about teaching here. Like they, like I... <laughs> The one of the things I always say is that, you know, law, law students come to school wide-eyed with a lot of hope and, and enthusiasm for the law. And a lot of people, once they leave law school and actually practice law, become very jaded and cynical. And like, it's hard. I fought it, but I in very, many ways, I've become very jaded and cynical about the law. And when I see like the next generation of lawyers and I get to work with them on, on projects and cases and really see like how they develop throughout the semester in terms of their legal writing skills and everything else like and just see like the passion and enthusiasm they have for the for the work and also just like the diverse backgrounds of the students that I'm teaching all of those things like it just it, it fills me with hope and like this you know right now like to, to recording like I've been doing final evaluations with students and this is like one of my favorite times because it's it's really an opportunity, not just for me to help students improve, but like to help build them up because I have a lot of students that come from disadvantaged backgrounds that are not the typical, you know, what you think of when you think of Harvard Law and they are rock stars. Um, and as like someone here who's like not typically represented, I feel like really realize the power of visibility, right? Like just even being visible here means like, you know, students that come and tell me things that like they probably can't tell to like their 70 something year old cis white male professor, right. That just doesn't get it. Um, And so that is just really huge, like that visibility. And I think also like I take it to the next step. Like I have my, my Sonia uh, poster behind me or my Sonia portrait. I also have, uh, you know, just like drew a Puerto Rican flag, Judge uh, Jackson and Marsha and, Sylvia Rivera, and then, of course, Pedro Albizu Campos. I call it like, my wall of power.
2: Yes. (laughs) I love it. I would be so beyond stoked if I came to college or came to law school and you were my professor and I was in your (laughs) office looking at your wall of power. That's incredible.
4: Yeah, because you don't see these faces typically in the law school, right? Like, you see a lot of older white folks, like, you know, famous alumni, stuff like that. It's rare that you see, like, people of color and, like, in that way. And it's like, I can point out, we have two Supreme Court justices, one who's an alumni of the school, and Pedro Reviso Campos, who a lot of people don't know about, but he was the Puerto Rican independence leader, supposed to be the valedictorian of the class of 1921 of Harvard Law School, as an Afro-Latinx uh, Borinquenio, and you know, uh, Harvard couldn't at that time, like, stand having a, a, a Afro-Latinx man be the valedictorian, so they withheld his grades to keep up, to delay him graduating so he wouldn't be valedictorian. But, you know, I have him here, and I am working to make sure he is more visible on this campus.
2: Yes, carrying that legacy. I love it. I guess one of my, one of the questions I'm so interested to get into is, I know it has been... A hard time for trans folks, and I think something about the Elon Musk news just was that much harder on a time that's already been very difficult. so I want to like acknowledge that. You know, what has Twitter, the experience of being on Twitter or on social media, been like for you as a trans woman?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been something else, right? So I've been on Twitter for like 12-ish years. But I didn't really use it. I mostly just kind of had a Twitter to just check every once in a while, whatever was trending. And um when I started running for city council, which I ultimately did not win, obviously. But when I you know I started heavily using Twitter as an organizing tool and as an ability to to connect with others in a political way. And I really started building up a following like two years ago, I had like a hundred followers. Um, on Twitter and now I'm like at 16,000. So it's like, it's just like it's ballooned. And that experience changes, right? When you're an anonymous account with a hundred people and you just kind of interact, like you, nobody really cares, right? But the minute you start getting a following and you start getting a lot of engagement and stuff like that, like the experience changes. You really start getting singled out um, uh, for people that if you like, like for instance, on Monday, like I criticized Elon Musk uh, buying Twitter and called like called into question like a lot of the things that he does that are that come off as very like white supremacists, like him flashing the okay symbol on SNL, him having like a segregated workplace at Tesla, his parents having wealth invested in an emerald mine and apartheid, era South Africa. I mean, I'm always just skeptical of any wealthy white person from South Africa. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's be real. I feel like major red flags, yeah. major red flags. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you know, the, the family's wealth is built on colonialism, like explicitly. Um, but, uh, you know, it, things like that. And then, you know, just a history of, of transphobic jokes and statements on Twitter. And, you know, I think like calling into the question that and my God, I got like hate mail on my personal working email, which like that almost never happens. And like I had to go private because like I was getting not just bombarded because like I have my notifications filtered. So like if they don't follow me, I don't I don't see it, you know, so like people can go at me all they want and do what a ratio, whatever the hell they can. I, I, I don't care. Like I don't see it that way, but what ends up happening is I, I do have my DMs open. So I can usually tell when something's going sideways, when I start getting a ton of actual like hate DMs um, and those get filtered as well, right? Like, um, so it's it's just like message requests. So I don't even see them um, unless I like specifically go, like it doesn't even send me a notification. It just like, it's just when I'm checking my messages. So I might check them like once a day or something like that. Um, and yeah, and like, flooded with messages on, on Monday. And it was just like a lot and it was overwhelming. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm taking this private. And the only other time I've gotten that dogpiled was when I criticized Joe Rogan. So, <laughs> there's something about these like white men that just like drives others to just go to all these lengths to defend them. I, I don't understand. They don't need to be defended they have Elon Musk is the richest man in the world with 85 million Twitter followers. Joe Rogan has the most listened to podcast in the world at like $200 million. Like he's going to be fine. He doesn't need an, a personal army to defend him. Yes. Have you
2: ever seen that meme where it's, um, it's like the Simpsons meme where it's like um, Elon Musk, you know, valid criticism and like internet weirdos diving in front of the bullet to save him from val- any kind of valid criticism. I yeah. feel like Joe Rogan and Elon Musk, they're two, they're two men who really, I feel like people must search on Twitter for their names to be like, no, so, yeah, like someone criticizing him not on my watch.
4: And if you notice a lot of people who start criticizing Elon Musk or even Joe Rogan, like what they'll do is they'll misspell his name. Like I've seen, I, I went like on my subsequent posts I was like using the name Melon Husk. Um, <laughs> Because, like, they, but they literally, that's what they do. Like, how, like, how much of a loser do you have to be to sit there and search the name Elon Musk so that when you see negative criticism, you dogpile that person and you, like, attack them? Like, it's just, uh, it's, it's just, like, ridiculous. Like, get a life, get a job, do something.
2: Definitely sounds like the behavior of someone who calls themselves an advocate of free speech. So, for sure. Let's take a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us. Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Y'all know I love the internet, but a sad truth about it is that it can be a scary place, especially for women, people of color, and trans folks. We've talked to people on this podcast, whistleblowers, activists, and advocates who are making technology safer, who then become targets for doing that work. But the truth is, it can happen to any of us online. That's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. Sign up and provide Delete.me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete.me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash no girls and enter code no girls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash no girls code no girls. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS.
0: My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant.
2: There Are No Girls on the Internet is doing a live show on May 28th at Caveat in New York City and virtually from wherever you're at. We'll have amazing guests, a meet and greet and much, much more. Go to tangodi.com slash live and get your tickets. And I cannot wait to see you there. And we're back. We've seen increasing attacks on LGBTQ folks using the label groomer. According to Research for Media Matters, on Twitter, the number of tweets with groomer-related language increased by over 60% in April, with over 870,000 tweets and retweets, compared to nearly 545,000 tweets in March. Now, grooming is a serious thing. It's used to describe the actions an adult takes to build a relationship with a child that makes that child more vulnerable to sexual abuse. And today, both online and off, extremists imply that LGBTQ folks or those who affirm LGBTQ youth are actually pedophiles who present a dangerous threat to children. It's a resurgence of a well-worn tactic of extremists. In the 70s, anti-gay activist Anita Bryant ran the Save Our Children campaign, aimed at repealing a local Florida ordinance prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And a key component of her campaign was suggesting that gay teachers were a threat to the safety of kids. And it's not just fringe extremists. Mainstream Republicans have passed legislation attacking marginalized identities, like laws criminalizing trans youth or Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill that puts vague restrictions on talking about sexual orientation in classrooms. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' press secretary, Christina Pushaw, described the legislation as, quote, the anti-grooming bill, tweeting that if you did not support the Don't Say Gay Bill, quote, then you're probably a groomer or at least don't denounce the grooming of four to eight-year-old children. Honestly, it is not difficult to see the influence of the QAnon conspiracy in her comments. And it should not be surprising to find that this moral panic has accompanied a wave of violent in-real-life threats against LGBTQ people.
4: It's it's already been kind of toxic. I think like there, there's definitely been a vibe shift in, since February um, that I've noticed. And it's been unlike anything I've ever seen, um, the kinds of attacks on LGBTQ people, specifically labeling LGBT people as groomers. Like and pedophiles. Like I, I never thought that would like happen in that way, and it's just absolutely gross. Like it is one of the grossest things I've ever seen. Um, and so we saw like in February, like libs of TikTok, James Lindsay, some of these like right wing trolls, Jack Pasovic and eventually got all the way up, you know. And it, and then what really changed was, DeSantis's press secretary Christina Pusha, uh labeling the Don't Say Gay bill as an anti grooming bill. Um, and like, that was the first time we had like a government official put the imprimatur of like, you know, this is a government message that like, we're, you know, if you oppose, don't say gay, you're a groomer kind of thing. And, um, it was terrifying. Like, like I think for, for pretty much all the trans people I know on Twitter, like it's like blaring red siren, like this is getting bad. Like this is going to lead to people getting killed. And we've already seen someone walk into a bar in Brooklyn with kerosene and set it on, a, a gay bar and set it on fire. Just a, like two days ago, someone threw bricks through a um, pride center in Burlington, Vermont. And this comes about two weeks after um, uh, I believe it was, her name was Feather Fern was, was murdered in, in Vermont. So like a trans woman um, and the person tried to initiate like the trans panic defense. And so like we've already seen that. And like the, the the attacks on like this gay couple on an Amtrak train in California being called pedophiles and child stealers because they adopted two kids. Like it's just horrific stuff. And this is directly as a result of the toxic online discourse. And because of this, like Twitter has generally tried to do the right thing, but anytime is specifically around trans people Anytime they try to make it better for trans people, the like, right-wing echo sphere just goes into overdrive. Like, they, just, like, it is like, they feel like it's their constitutional right to go on private companies' websites to harass trans people.
2: It's really not surprising to me that Twitter has emerged as this new battleground for the so-called culture wars. Traditionally, marginalized people use Twitter to carve out power and a voice for ourselves. We built movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter on Twitter. And I think the idea of marginalized people building power on Twitter is incredibly threatening to people who have traditionally had all the power. For instance, Elon Musk said that he was inspired to buy Twitter after the right-wing parody site The Babylon Bee was suspended for refusing to delete a transphobic tweet misgendering Admiral Rachel Levine, who was a trans woman and the assistant secretary for health for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
4: And, like... That's what we saw. Like we saw what was reported, right? The Babylon Bee being suspended for its joke about Dr. Levine was supposedly one of the last straws for Elon Musk. And so like they push the envelope, they push this hatred. And then when a site tries to step in and say like, this is leading to violence, this is causing harm, they, you know, cry free speech or whatnot. But what it really is, is they want the free freedom to, to bully, right? Like, because if you want to say like, I hate trans people, I don't believe they should exist. You can say that to the cows come home, right? Like you could just go on a street corner and yell it. That is free speech. The government cannot stop you from saying that. You can scream it out a corner. You can write manifestos. You can like do it, write a novel how much you hate trans people. Knock yourself out, right? But a social media company is different. They are not under those obligations and people fundamentally do not understand that. And the problem is, is, like if you make a social media company hostile to people, you're not gonna stay around very long. Like we've seen what sites with no moderation are like, 4chan, 8chan, 8kun, um, you know, all these sites, like they don't have advertisers. No like typical person goes on there because it is filled with racial slurs, anti-Semitic slurs, homophobic slurs, like just the worst of the worst. Like it is literally filled with actual Nazis, like posting Nazi memes. So like, we know what that looks like. And so at at some end, like Twitter has to engage in moderation. And it really, what it is, is like they're trying to use trans people as a wedge to basically destroy a social media site for daring to protect trans people.
2: The way that I see it is that, you know, in the last five, 10 years or whatever, social media platforms, I would say all of them, but really Twitter is like a special platform Ha- people who have been traditionally marginalized have been able to you know, have a little bit of a, more of a voice and have a little bit more power that institutionally we didn't really get to have. And I think that that's maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing this, Twitter be this big battlefield right now because I think people who are threatened by that, people who are threatened when they see you know, people who have traditionally had a harder time making their voices heard – get those platforms, get those voices. And even if, a, even if a platform like Twitter does the bare minimum to make their platform a little bit hospitable to these voices, that feels very threatening. Or threat- Yeah, that feels very threatening and therefore they have to sort of go out of their way to, to, to remind folks, no, this platform needs to be hostile toward people who are traditionally marginalized. Right. I want that status quo back where I can say whatever and they can't say anything.
4: Right, right. Um, and like, it's like the the classic saying, right? When you're all you're accustomed to is privilege, equality feels like oppression. Um And that's very much what what it is. Libs
2: of TikTok is a Twitter account run by Shia Raychek with over one point two million followers that basically exists to spread lies and fear about teachers grooming children. The account is called Public Schools, quote, government-run indoctrination camps for the LGBTQ. Spread outlandish lies about LGBTQ youth and teachers, while also singling them out for harassment and abuse. It's also become an influential piece of right-wing online infrastructure. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's press secretary Christina Pushaw, said the account truly opened her eyes on the state of LGBTQ education in schools.
4: I think one of the most illustrative issues of this was TikTok. Like, it, what it is is it's it's all about fundamentally power, and it's power to make sure that. The in-group maintains power in society and the out-group is minimized. And in this case, the the in-group is mostly white conservatives, mostly white supremacists and and others and fascists. Um, And then what you have is the out-group is like queer, LGBTQ people, people of color, women, others, and like that they want to marginalize. And so what ends up happening is, is like you have TikTok, right? So like TikTok, or not TikTok, uh, libs of TikTok is specifically retweeting videos of LGBTQ teachers that likely have like maybe a hundred or a thousand views on TikTok, right? This is, these are re- relatively obscure people that are just posting their thoughts online. They rip those videos and they post them online with very leading titles. Some of them, like I've watched the videos, it's just like a teacher talking about the students asking them who their husband is. And they like came out to the class and they were like, if anyone comes out and if any gay teacher comes out, they should be fired on the spot. Like that's literally what libs of TikTok said. And so then they come out and they're like, you know, they're just exposing liberals for what they say. And they're just showing up and, you know, that's what they do. And i like, meanwhile, like they're sending a torrent of harassment towards these people that are relatively anonymous. And additionally towards school districts, they're creating a whole panic by like pushing this groomer libel. Um, And then essentially, you know, they they want the power to do that. And then the minute that anybody steps up and says, yeah, this is who that person is, Shia Raychek," like they forgot to use a pseudonym when they registered their domain name. And now that's public information like they went into overdrive to attack taylor lorenz at the washington post who didn't even expose it by the way internet researchers exposed it and they were so upset that this person was like doxxed or you know quote unquote or that they were exposed and that like it was so vicious and she's exposed to harassment all this stuff and it's like it's literally what she does She's She sends harassment and death, like not her directly, but it's like what's called stochastic terrorism, right? She knows that by putting somebody on blast on her Twitter, what will happen? And the fact that she was scared of people knowing who she was and the fact that they acted like it was some big thing to expose that, like, like grow up, grow up. Like you have an account with a million followers now, you are getting interviewed by Tucker Carlson in national media, and you have an expectation of privacy, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you do not. Um, and, you know, and again, don't use your actual name to register a donate a domain. Like, just don't do it. <laughs> so, and, but, but again, like going back to the dynamic, like this is about preserving power, right? Like that's what lives of TikTok does, right? It creates a chilling effect. How many queer or LGBTQ teachers on TikTok are not going to talk on TikTok or post a video for fear that they will be, their content ripped, and then they will be fired or have a mob at a school board meeting talking about them to asking for them to be fired. Teachers making, or or, or parents making accusations against them, like all these things just for existing as a queer person, right? Like it is a moral panic that is what was going on right now.
2: I'm so glad that you brought this up because this is something that I, I talk about a lot on the show and just in general. So Elon Musk and people like him, they love talking about free speech. And they, from the way they talk, it would seem as though the people who are likely facing consequence for the things they say are white, conservative, or libertarian men who just like want to say slurs or whatever. But the reality is that it's marginalized people who are much more likely to face consequences for the things they say, especially online. And so you know, I guess my question is, like, how can we... And I think that just completely gets missed whenever we're having a conversation about speech and who, who, you know, free speech for who. How can we change that conversation, change that focus so that it is about the reality that it's queer folks, trans folks, sex workers, activists who are either pushed out of spaces or silenced or, you know, deplatformed for what they say? Like, like, why do you think that, the, that when we talk? But when people who seem so obsessed with talking about speech, why do you feel like though the marginalized people who we know are the people who are facing consequences for what they say like like why do they get why are they able to get left out so often yeah
4: I, it's mainly because you know it, it, it's again it's it's insidious what these people do right so it, it, it again boils down to the, the the difference between equality and equity right so if everyone has access on twitter that's equality and so everyone's like, well, everyone's equal here on on the site but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's equity, right? Like there's all kinds of things that go into a social media site. Like even having time to be able to post on Twitter, that's a, that's a privilege because a lot of people do not, like there are people working two jobs, three jobs, like doing stuff. Like they don't have time to pay attention on Twitter. They're raising kids, like they're doing all that stuff. So like that already, like you're already creating all these things. But one of the things I always love to to point out with like the difference between equity and quality is like, let's say you had three children that were different ages and sizes. One is like three foot, one is four foot, and one is five foot. And there is a four foot fence uh, covering while they're trying to watch a baseball game. Well, you could say, I'm gonna give them all one, uh, a one foot like block for them to stand on. The third child is still not gonna be able to see. Um, because, and, but that's equality, right? They all got the same boost and the, the first kid who didn't even need it in the first place is now even higher up for a better view. But what equity is, is understanding the nature of the situation and giving that first kid a two foot block, the middle kid a foot block, and then just leaving it. And they are there, you know, that is equity, right? And so understanding that. And so there, there's an idea here that we, you know, we've been been discussing within the clinic, you know, within our, our course here and um, our seminar Uh, Like talking about algorithmic reparations, like the designs of these sites, because people act like that these things are designed neutrally. They're not. There's always conscious bias that goes into the design of these websites. And so if you're not actively countering it, you are permitting it. Um, And so that's one of the aspects of the design of sites like Twitter that needs to be accounted for. And I think Twitter hasn't necessarily gone that way. They're just trying to plug holes in everything that shows up, right? But they're at least attempting. I think they have, a, like, like they're trying. So that that concept of equity, right? That's what they're demonizing. They're demonizing diversity, equity, inclusion. They're acting like it's this horrible thing. They're banning, you know, any talk about critical race theory, which, like, I'm like, if you want to take critical race theory, you have to be like a 2L or 3L here at Harvard Law School. Like (laughs) we're not teaching it to kindergartners. Like that is not what's happening, but that doesn't matter, right? Like all they have to do is scream it. And that's all of a sudden that's reality. And like what is even more disturbing beyond the the critical race theory, which is like just a wholesale denial of this country's history. It's it's all to protect white innocence, right? At the end of the day, like that's what it's about. It's protecting white innocence.
2: More after a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance, They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS.
0: Me.
3: It
1: just be me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
3: Tired of hair removal tools that just don't cut it? Conair Girl Bomb gives you smooth, flawless results while putting you firmly in control. From achieving that silky, smooth skin to boosting your inner confidence, Conair Girl Bomb is all about helping you elevate your self-care game. Whether it's creating a hype playlist, throwing yourself into a hobby, or scheduling some me time, So, to all you incredible women out there, treat yourself to a little Conair Girl Bomb magic. Don't settle for anything less than perfection. Elevate your grooming game with Conair Girl Bomb. Available now at ConairGirlBomb.com or a retailer near you.
2: Let's get right back into it. Just in case you needed any more proof that we're in the middle of a full-blown moral panic, last month, Florida's education department accused publishers of trying to indoctrinate kids with math textbooks by trying to sneak in lessons grounded in emotional and social learning, which is basically a classroom methodology that helps kids understand their emotions around subjects and demonstrate empathy for others. For example, if a math book said that sometimes math problems can look scary, or if a book said... It's good to work together to solve problems. Those would be examples of social and emotional learning. The Washington Post reports that Florida's education department said that it rejected 41% of books, the most ever in Florida's history, even though at least 24 of those books scored high marks from the official state reviewers for conforming to Florida's standards, but were rejected anyway. And this crackdown happens, all while people like University of Virginia recent grad Emma Camp who published a recent New York Times op-ed about how conservative speech is being suppressed on college campuses, are uplifted as the face of attacks on free speech.
4: What's more devious is like this attack on emotional and social learning. Like this is what we saw in Florida with like 40 books, math books banned, For the crime of putting, it's sometimes better to learn together, listen to other people, hear what they have to say. And it's like, are you trying to raise a country of sociopaths? Like the, the, (laughs) I mean, what is the goal of that? Like literally these people would like attack Mr. Rogers today.
2: Yeah, I saw one of my favorite books growing up was um, Babies Everywhere. And it's like like essentially a picture book about how there's babies everywhere. And it was banned in some state, I can't remember where. And the, the offending, the only like offending image I, I use that in scare quotes was one of the babies behind the baby was two men, and one of the men has his hand on the the other's shoulder. And so it's like, I was reading this interview with the author, and she was like, we don't explicitly say that they're married or that they have this child. It's like they could be brothers, they could be friends. Like we don't even say anything. but under these under in this new climate, just the suggestion, like, oh, two men standing next to each other, no. Can't have that in schools. Can't have anybody seeing that.
4: Yeah, and I mean that—that's that's part of it, right? Like it, it's erasing any sense of queerness, and this this is what like is frustrating about mainstream coverage around this whole debate, right? Like we constantly see op-ed after op-ed about I don't feel like I can say what I want to say in classrooms and like what they mean in, in like college classrooms or, or like college courses or college campuses. Like, I feel like if I say something, my my uh, classmates might ostracize me. And I'm like, okay, that's real life. Like, I'm sorry, that's a new concept. You say something unpopular and people will not like it. Yeah, I, I mean, like, you can-
2: <laughs> I can't go into my office and be like, all y'all smell like shit without my coworkers getting upset. Yeah. What's the deal? It's like, uh, yeah, it's called, it's always been that way. You, there are consequences of the things that you say. People can ostracize you when they don't like what you have to say. And I I guess I feel like in comparison to the way that we're seeing this very clear crackdown on marginalized voices, it just seems so like the the wh- whose stories get amplified of, you know, quote unquote having their free speech crackdown on, where it's like, oh, my college classroom, when I said something they didn't like it compared to, you know, people being fired. Bi- it's just like, it, it's, it's just really wild to me yeah. in, in the mainstream coverage who gets amplified and who doesn't.
4: Yeah. Like in that, that, that story that was in the New York times recently, like it, the, the woman who wrote it, like had already just graduated and I think was working for reason magazine and like was being pushed up by fire and uh, which is like a big org like libertarian org. Um, and like, has like these powerful people behind her like platforming and she's like she went to university of virginia which is like already like one of the top schools in the country and so she's like went to a top school is working at a national media and is like I can't say what I want to say in the college classroom meanwhile the most banned books in the country are literally is like literally um anything dealing with LGBTQ people i mean we're literally talking about like books that feature like two penguins like it's <laughs> It's insane. Like, and there are like entire like there are school boards like saying that books should be burned. Like, I'm sorry. Like, w- on what way is any of this like on an equal plane? Like, that is a much greater threat because, like, you know, as the the, the cliche goes, like, where they burn books, they will burn people. Mm. Like, that is far scarier because that is much more systemic and that is using the levers of government to achieve it. It's not a private company deciding who is coming into their little social media site and saying stuff. Like that is, the, they're using the government. And so like that, that is on, that's explicitly what the first amendment was to protect. The first amendment is to protect us against the government censoring speech. So we have governments censoring speech, banning books, and like barely a pip. And like all of a sudden we have like one white girl on a college campus who feels like she can't say something and like that's on the front page of the New York Times. Like, I'm sorry, like I'm, you lost me.
2: (laughs) I guess, you know, do do you see this kind of climate that we're in that is so hostile to, or, or where we're seeing such a backlash against marginalized voices Do that, you know, we know brew online and brew on social media sites. Do you see this as a direct threat to democracy?
4: Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, we've seen what social media can do when it's unchecked. Literally, all we have to do is like a 2016. I mean, I remember being in the middle of it on Reddit. Like Reddit was a heavy site for disinformation in the 2016 campaign. And like, it. W- I felt like I was losing my mind. Like, it, And like reading similar stories of people in Ukraine in 2014, like that's what it feels like. When you're subjected to that kind of disinformation because like you will talk to people in real life and like nobody talks that way or believes anything like that and like there's one thing to be said about social media bubbles and like stuff like that but it's a whole nother when it's like this just like completely out of left field stuff and just the kind of vitriol that gets you know shared online and like we've seen where that leads right like trump was <laughs> most definitely like it's probably not the only factor like there's a million things that went into it but a huge reason why Trump was elected is because of, of disinformation on Facebook, on Twitter, on Reddit, on all these sites. And so for people to think that this doesn't have like a potential threat to democracy, it has the ability to influence democracy. Like a conspiracy theory on Twitter got a man to go with a, uh, a, an assault rifle to a pizza shop because of conspiracy theories around like, like the whole pizza gate conspiracy. There are people who believe that Wayfair is shipping children in furniture. Like if you, and like, was the, the, the I feel like this one's always misquoted, but the, the Voltaire um, quote is like, if you can uh, get people to believe in absurdities, you can get them to commit atrocities. Oof. And Like that, that's exactly the kind of thing that I think about because, like, if you start labeling like trans people as this like groomer cult that are going after children and damaging their bodies, quote unquote, and doing all these things and like all of this, like, and and just the the language you're using, it is a matter of time. It is not an if, it is a when. Someone is going to take matters into their own hands and they're either going to go shoot up a gay bar or they're gonna bomb a gender clinic. I mean, we've seen, this is the, the kind of stuff that's going on around like the organizing around gender clinics is the same kind of stuff that was happening in the 90s around abortion clinics. And we like, we've seen what happens around that. And so like this kind of amped up rhetoric, it, it's, it's stochastic terrorism. Like you can't pinpoint any violent act to anything said online. But the overall raising of the temperature is what allowed it to happen in the first place.
2: Yeah, I feel the exact same way. Um I live in DC, so I remember very clearly when that happened at Comet Ping Pong, the pizza place here in DC. Like, like the and, and I think I was even before we just got on the call just now, I was reading that um I think the FBI arrested a man who was threatening to attack Merriam Webster, the dictionary, because he did not agree with the way that they were defining man and woman. Um and yeah, it just I just feel like we've come to this place where the temperature has been raised so much, and I see that di- as a direct result of things happening on social media, of social media algorithms really, you know, prioritizing the most extreme content, the the most you know inflammatory rhetoric, and just I, I, yeah, I guess I really I had I, I hadn't intended for this interview to sound so alarmist, yeah. but it's it is I feel it so. You know, yeah. it's just a lot, and I, yeah. I, don't, I, I don't like, I don't feel good about when I ask, you know, where does this end? I don't really like imagining what the answer to that question is. Like, where does this end? I don't know. Probably nowhere good.
4: This is what I've oh. been reading
2: oh. reading. oh my god! Life. So you're,
4: so you're just like, like really. Wow. Long like, form doom scrolling is what I call yes. it. Um, <laughs> so no, I, I held up the the, the book Gay Berlin, um, which like talked about, pre, like pre Weimar, but also mostly Weimar er, uh, Republic era Germany, and how you know it was a haven for LGBTQ people. Um, had like the first the first surgery, gender affirming surgeries. It had some of the first attempt, like first administrations of hormones, um, the first serious attempt at a study of queer and trans people, uh, lesbians and gays and others, like, it just, like, by Magnus Hirschfeld, like, all those things, and there was just kind of this, like, golden era where it was, like, that never really existed in that way in the West of tolerance, right, in Berlin, and it all just came crashing down so quickly in 1933, but, like, if you've been paying attention, like, (laughs) it, it wasn't a surprise. Like A lot of people got out like starting in the late 20s, early 30s, like they saw what was happening. And so it's like, I think people just think that like these things come out of nowhere and like, you don't, you know, and I, I always hate, like, I said, Godwin's law, like, God like bringing up the Nazis and stuff like that. Because like that, that, that's kind of, we, we just have so much media. So that's like, it's it easier to relate to. But I think like, if you, you don't need to go far, you can go to contemporary examples. You have Hungary and Poland Hungary has banned the existence of trans people. They've banned all legal recognition of trans people in the, in the country. They have made, passed gay propaganda laws, which the press secretary for Ron DeSantis in Florida admitted now that it was based on the ban in Hungary. Like, so they're getting these ideas from these like, far-right authoritarian, illiberal countries. And like Russia just dissolved the biggest LGBTQ rights org in the country And they've passed a gay propaganda law. Like they see that, and they see that as a model. Like that is their goal. That is their inspiration. Um, And that's terrifying because, like, that's exactly the same kind of stuff. Like, 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 queer people right now are like that canary in the coal mine. And I would argue, like, before that, it was it's very much been immigrants. Mm -hmm. Like, having been an immigration attorney for three years, the kinds of stuff that people would say about immigrants, the, the the kinds of policies we have. Here in the United States, like, like, our the conditions that we hold immigrants in and in detention and the rights that they have, like, would violate the Geneva Convention. Like, it is atrocious what we do. It is a human rights like violation and crime for what we do around immigrants. And like, we saw the rhetoric rhetoric with Trump, right? And then now it's it's LGBTQ people. And we already start to see this, this kind of massive reactionary backlash to the George Floyd protests, the black lives matter protests. And like, it's, it's only a matter of time, like this is going to get worse. And it always reminds me of that poem. It's like, you know, and I, I posted this and it went viral and, and, you know, some people like were like, well, you, it was this group or was that group? And I'm like, that's not the point. There's not a point of, of, of it being a first group. It's the point that like, if you don't stand up for a marginalized group, like, it's, it's not going to stop. And so I posted the, you know, the famous poem. It's like, first they came for trans people and I did nothing because I'm not trans. Then they came for the lesbians and gays and I did nothing because I'm not lesbian and gay. And I was like, we are here, right? Like, especially after this like groomer rhetoric. And it, it was just like, and it was mind blowing to me to see conservative gay men freak out. And like, oh, this has gone too far. Like, like Andrew Sullivan was like apoplectic about the groomer label being applied to him. He's happy to talk, happy for that label to be applied to trans people. But the minute it got applied to him, it's was like, whoa, 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 this has gone too far. And it's like, where did you think this was going? Like, did you think that they could just delineate between trans people and queer people? Like, they, they, they can't. Like, they're all the same. They think we're all degenerates. They think we're all like need to be wiped from this planet. Like that, it, it's exterminationist. They are not going to make some fine distinction for the good ones and be like, oh, no, 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 he's okay. No, not going to happen.
2: Well, you know, I always end my interviews with a question. <laughs> are you hopeful? I guess I feel I feel like, I mean, I, I, I'll ask. It doesn't sound like you are. Are, are. When you look at the state of things today, are you hopeful?
4: <sighs> uh, I, I posted about this on my Twitter the other day. I am a pessimist. Like I am... Uh, a pessimist. I, I I love the quote from. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a huge Marvel nerd. Like I love the MCU. I've watched. Every, I just completed a whole rewatch of the MCU for like the fifth time. Um, but there's like a, a Zendaya's character MJ and Spider Man, and she's talking like she's like, um, you know, I always expect disappointment. So that way, you know, if if it happens, then you know, I won't be disappointed. Um, And that's the kind of attitude I have, which I feel like a lot of people like that, that doesn't work for them. And that's fine. Like some people need to be optimistic. Nothing wrong with that. My the way I function, the way that I cope is pessimism. Because if I'm wrong, which I always hope I am, things worked out much better than I anticipated. And so that's always kind of served me well. And so like, for me, like, I see this going down a very dark path. And I don't think there's anything changing. It's and it's only accelerating and getting worse. And like, I I fully believe like by 2024, like by November, 2024, or early 2025, like, I think we'll see a like basically collapse of democracy in the United States. And things can go very south very quickly. Um, And so I've been starting to prepare, I'm getting my passport ready, and I'm starting to save up a ton of money and like getting ready to like, yeah, hey, Europe sounds good around this time of year. And like, You know, and I know that's not an option for everyone. It really isn't. Like a lot of people can't just immigrate. A lot of people can't get passports. A lot of people can't get the money to even fly, right? So like that's a privilege in and of itself, but like we've got time. If you can like, you know, save money, like all those things. I feel like I'm being very alarmist and like negative, but hey, if it doesn't, if everything turns out fine and I'm catastrophically wrong, which I hope I am, Well, now I've got my passport and I got a ton of money and
2: I can go on vacation. Oh, there you go. That's a, that's a like, you know, a a little silver lining on this shit sandwich that is our democracy and our country. (laughs) Oh, I mean, it's, it's bad. I, I used to, I used to joke years ago, uh, back when I thought it was impossible. So I, so my organizing background is in the reproductive rights movement. And I used to joke years ago that, like, oh, if Roe ever falls, I hope I'm, I'm, I will be reading about it from the newspaper in a different country. And now it seems like, oh, well, I'm still here in the United States and it seems like it's going to happen. So guess that didn't work out for me so well. Yeah. I mean, like
4: ask, you know, LGBTQ Russians, right? Like I used to have uh, some friends who, who were uh, from Russia and it was like, when is it going to get too bad to go back? Right. Like for them, like to, to even visit their family and, um, you know, now obviously things have gone to a point where it's like not not really okay. But for Frau people, like, was it in twenty thirteen when they passed the gay propaganda law? Was it like twenty seventeen when Chechnya started a concentration camps for gay men? Like, is it now that they start the war? So like there's always a question of like when is the right timing? And I don't think there really is. Like if you left Berlin In 1929, you'd be fine. If you left in 1932, you'd be fine. If you even left in 1933, you'd likely be okay. If you waited until 1935 or even 1939, you were not gonna be okay, right? Like, and so it's like learning our history so that you can see the signs and knowing, okay, this is my red line. Like I need to get out of here Um, or in having an exit plan because things can also move quickly. I feel that like knowing your history and knowing history is empowering.
2: I'm I mean I'm glad that we have folks like you in our institutions who are helping to, you know the next generation to really have that power to be empowered by our collective shared history. Try as conservatives might to make that impossible to study and know and learn from. Yep, exactly. Where can folks keep up with all of the incredible work that I know that you are
4: up to? Yeah, you can find me. All my social media handles are squeer underscore. So E-S-Q-U-E-E-R. It is a portmanteau of Esquire and Queer. Again, you can find me at squeer underscore um, on Twitter, Instagram. um, And you can catch my podcast, Queering the Law. Um, We typically release weekly on Mondays. Um, You can find it basically anywhere podcasts are issued. Um and yeah, thank you so much for having me. Is
2: there anything that I did not ask that you want to make sure it gets included?
4: Um yeah, uh please, please donate to the Trevor Project. There is going to be a massive smear campaign against the Trevor Project this week or this upcoming week. Um, this is how low they've stooped. They're attacking a suicide hotline. Um, it's it's fucking sick. Like that's all I'm gonna say. So please, if you can, $10, $20, $30, it's life-saving work. Uh, Our youth are bearing the brunt of this, um, and they need the help and support. So please, if you can, donate to the Trevor Project.
2: So I try really hard not to get too negative on this podcast, and it's been a little bit difficult lately. If you're listening in the United States where I'm based, it's been difficult to ignore what feels like a coordinated attack on marginalized people in the United States. From attacks on LGBTQ youth and educators to attacks on abortion access, we are witnessing an anti-democratic rollback of our rights. On Saturday, May 14th, in cities across the country, we'll be mobilizing to demand protection of abortion access. I'll be there in D.C., so if you see me, please say hello. And you can go to tangobity.com rally to find an event happening in your city. Now, I know it is a hard time. I know it's so easy to check out and disengage. I feel tempted myself sometimes. But I also know that when we come together, we are powerful. And I believe in us. Hope to see you there. If you're looking for ways to support the show, check out our merch store at tangodi.com slash store. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangodi.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangody.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. Edited by Joey Pat. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart
3: health, that's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional-grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. The